Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program. No one wants to have elections during the middle of a holiday. And when, typically when you have these runoffs, it's right around the, the Thanksgiving period. And that's just really uh, very disruptive to people's lives. And so uh, is it time that we consider moving it? I said it was. And I think the General Assembly is going to start taking it up in the, in the coming days. We're talking runoffs and a bit more with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Also, a local advocate will share her experience in navigating America's complicated immigration system. And she'll talk about how she wants to change the public perception of immigrants. Plus, this past Sunday, during the morning worship service at Destiny World Church in Austell, Georgia, Pastor Wilbur T. Purvis III asked all of the men in attendance to stand. You'll hear why. All that's just ahead. But first, this could it be this week. A Fulton County judge is currently weighing whether to release the findings of that special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Now, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says her decision on whether to seek criminal indictments is, quote, imminent. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. Prosecutors want to keep the special grand jury's final report secret, at least for now. It may include recommendations for criminal charges for the public officials and operatives who prosecutors say work to interfere with the election. The investigation stemmed from then-President Trump's call asking Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find votes. The probe also examined the spread of false election fraud claims and a slate of false electors for Trump. If Willis pursues charges, that would require the sign-off from a standing grand jury. That can happen whether or not the final report is public. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other news, U.S. Senator John Ossoff is pushing for federal funding to expand parks and protected forest land in Georgia. As Molly Samuel reports, he wants to expand the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest, an area known as the Dug Down Corridor on the Alabama border. Ossoff is asking the U.S. Forest Service to prioritize the two areas for money from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That's a federal fund that puts hundreds of millions of dollars a year towards conservation. I grew up hiking and camping and paddling in Georgia's beautiful wild places. And he says he looks forward to taking his 13-month-old daughter to those places, too. In a letter Ossoff sent this month to the chief of the U.S. Forest Service, he says there's significant demand from the public to visit the national forest and the parks in the dug-down corridor. But being not too far from Atlanta, there's also the threat that properties that could be added to those natural areas end up getting developed instead. That's why he's asking for the funding. These efforts will expand public access to recreation. That's hunting and camping and fishing and backpacking. He says the protected lands also bring in tourism for local economies. They support the forestry industry. They provide habitat for wildlife and can improve water quality and reduce wildfire risk. Molly Samuel, WABE News. 
Georgia lawmakers are considering how to regulate electric vehicles. Yes, it's a growing industry that's expected to expand even more as federal incentives kick in. And we hear that report from Emily Jones. A report from a state study committee says lawmakers need to decide whether gas stations can install EV chargers that will sell electricity directly to consumers, something only utility companies can do now. They're also weighing whether to let electric car makers sell straight to customers without going through dealerships. And then there's the funding question, how to pay for road upkeep if people don't need to buy gas and thus pay gas taxes. State Senator Steve Gooch says that's why the state currently charges EV owners an annual fee. That's really where we need to focus our attention is keeping that practice going forward. Everybody should pay their fair share. But how people pay and how much could change. One possibility, charging EV owners based on how many miles they drive instead of a flat fee. The study committee is recommending a pilot program to test out that system. Emily Jones, WABE News. Coming up next, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. You're listening to Closer Look. Back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A day after last month's U.S. Senate runoff between incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker, a press release came out from Georgia's Secretary of State office. And the first line read, quote, Georgia voters came out in force in the 2020, excuse me, 2022 midterm election, shattering midterm turnout records. The statement also included bullet points highlighting the achievements as touted by the state's top elections agency and overall cited, quote, by any measure, the 2022 midterm election was a success for all Georgia voters, close quote. Well, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger agrees, and that's where our conversation picks up. We spoke earlier today. Welcome back. It's been some time. Thank you, Rose. Good to see you. Let's begin here because months removed from the conclusion of another major election cycle. What's your office's assessment of how it all went? I think it went very well. Voters are happy. Voters are pleased. Uh, We had great participation. Uh, Obviously, more voters uh, like to vote early. But if you look at the average line time, uh, they were generally very short all across the state. We've now had two polls. The AJC did a poll Mm -hmm. plus UGA. We're just getting high marks and voters are pleased. They feel confident in the results, confident in the process. So you contend no major issues or breakdowns from either sending out absentee ballots, processing them, overseas ballots, early voting, all of that. No major issues. Yes. Yeah, so the only issue we really saw was uh, during the runoff cycle, uh, we didn't have enough early voting locations open during the early voting cycles. So we had some lines there. So I voted on Election Day for the runoff and I was uh, in at quarter to seven, out by seven oh eight. 
Uh, but if you look at the participation we have for the November race, um, lines on election day were shorter than one hour. Uh, people were, longest wait time we heard about was 31 minutes. I think there's a few instances mm-hmm. where it got close to an hour for the just moments in time during the day. But the average wait time that we were tracking was two minutes statewide. Based on that, do you think that perhaps you all might want to review or talk to lawmakers about even changing some of the the provisions as it relates to, well, we'll get to this later, runoffs or or anything related to having more precincts or or more, you know, ballot boxes? Anything that you think you you would like to see changed here? Well, what we've been uh, very clear on is that we believe that the runoff should be eliminated And when we had our seminar for all of our election directors, 159 counties, there was a uniform uh, theme that they came back with is they supported eliminating runoffs. They weren't into means and method, how that happened, but they just realized there's an awful lot of work to get done in that very short cycle. And so they'd like to see uh, runoffs eliminated. And then the polling showed a majority of of Georgia's, nearly 60% believe that we should eliminate runoffs. So I think that's one of the big issues. But if we don't eliminate runoffs, uh, we just like to make sure that at the early voting locations during the runoff, that the counties have enough early voting locations to keep those lines short. People want to know that their vote is secure, it's accurate, and there's a good process for that. But remember, after you do all that, people like to have short lines. Uh, it's the one thing that we really hear about from voters, and we just love to have voters be happy and be confident in the results. I want to come back to that in a moment, but were there any cases or potential voter fraud? Is there anything that your office, which would be considered a significant amount of potential voter fraud cases you all are working through? Any? Well, we had several hundred cases that we opened up over the course of the 2022 cycle, uh, but none of those would ever amount to uh, coordinated efforts, as it appears, and none of that would have ever have changed any of the outcomes of any of the races. But we investigate everything. But mm-hmm. a lot of those were like procedural things that happened at very diff- different spots. But ongoing investigations, we bring that before the state election board. But if you go back to November, it was a very quiet day, yet we mm-hmm. had really strong t- We had stronger turnout on election of November 2022 than we had in November 2020. And that was a presidential year. So you think about that. More voters turned out to vote. Lines were short. And voters had smiles on their face. Now, after all the votes were tabulated, I know that half the people were not happy with the results, but half of the people were. But the the process worked well for Georgians, and that's what you're seeing in the polling. Speaking of processes, because obviously with the 2021 Senate Bill 202, there was some overhaul with the processes, including allowing anyone to challenge the eligibility of a voter to cast ballots. And, and that was for any given election. Now, as we know, granted, the majority of those challenges were rejected. But here's my question, Mr. Secretary. How much does that calculate in terms of expense, time, personnel and folks having to deal with that? Yeah, we've been uh clear about that. We mentioned that several months ago when that was a situation uh, and that we said that the General Assembly should probably review that and really kind of, you know, be a bit more, add some more clarification and uh, guardrails for that process. Uh, That was the one area that, you know, just needlessly uh, added additional uh, time uh, and other stresses uh, to our county election directors. Would you support stripping that provision from Georgia's Election Integrity Act? Would you, if you could, if you get lawmakers to somehow agree that that's not needed? 
Well, I think that really it needs to be cleaned up just so that it's very clear. So it's not, you don't have frivolous charges and all scale. You really want to dial in and make sure people really are Georgia residents. They are lawful voters. We understand that. But uh, we think that that needs some tweaking. And we recommend that the General Assembly work on that. Is it safe to say that are you going to credit Senate Bill 202 and those sweeping reforms as the reason everything went, as you just told me, with voters having a smile on your face? Are you willing to say that that's the reason? Well, Senate Bill 202 and also House Bill 316, which we passed when I first took, took office, I think they've been all working hand in hand. With House Bill 316 back in 2019, we outlawed ballot harvesting. We were able to join the Electronic Registration Information Center so we could update our voter rolls objectively instead of subjectively. And then we have a verifiable paper ballot. And we also mandated doing an audit of one statewide race. So we think that helps short up the security and the confidence in the process. Rolling into SB 202, well, number one is that we have 17 days of early voting. And that second Saturday, what we found out, you know who uses the second Saturday or other Saturday of voting? People with jobs that can't get off during the week. Mm-hmm. So it really uh, was just an opportunity for voters to be able to participate in the process and not have to worry about, you know, can they get off from work? Uh, so that was very helpful. And then having photo ID for absentee voting, what it did is it elevated security by doing that. I think it elevated confidence. We actually modeled that after what they've been doing in Minnesota for over 10 years now, mm-hmm. 10 years now. And uh, it's been used in other states, and I think that's going to probably be the model, a national model moving forward to have, you know, secure identification of absentee voters. You know, another provision of the Georgia's Election Integrity Act was stripping your position as Secretary of State, as the chairman of the state election board. And with the ability that for the General Assembly to replace it with just anybody, I mean, they could have used me. Now, I don't know if I want that job, but you call that, quote, an act of retribution because of your refusal to help change the outcome of Georgia's 2020 presidential results. How problematic is having that provision in in, in law? Well, I follow law and I follow the Constitution. And that's the state law that we make sure we follow. And we work with people. Uh, We make sure that the state election board has the resources. We still provide the investigations. uh, And we work cooperatively with the state election board, also with the House, the Senate, and obviously the governor's office. Uh, We want to make sure that we have safe and secure elections for everyone. And I think that's what people really, uh, you know, are really giving us high marks for, is that they understand that we do have fair and honest elections. That yes, you'll be disappointed with results if your team doesn't carry forward on certain races, but we know that it's been an honest and fair election. And that's what voters really, you know, should expect, and that's what we're giving. But you, as the highest ranking elections official in the state this had been that you had that authority your position had that authority i think for decades right and you've said this was a you felt this was an act of retribution so you can't be happy with that well it is what it is and i stated my case uh when sb202 was passed but we've moved on and we've now you know making sure that you know we fulfill state law and fulfill our mandate to make sure that everyone knows we have honest and fair and secure elections in Georgia. I think we have the appropriate guardrails. We have photo ID for all forms of voting in Georgia. We have 17 days early voting. That's really working well. And we kept no excuse absentee voting. And so no matter how they vote, it'll be based on photo ID. That's shored up security and by shoring up security it elevated confidence. And we've been auditing races. And by auditing races, we can verify the machines are accurate and you can trust the vote. But 
that's what your office is supposed to do. But you, I know, and that's what we do. But again, and and, and I'm going to move on. But I think that if you want folks to continue, as you said, to have faith in the system, and there's a law that just can that allows anyone to be appointed. This is a very powerful. The state election board is a very powerful entity. Yeah, and I've been very clear that I've always had a concern about unelected boards, commissions, and authority having a very you know important uh, influence be it at the county level or wherever, because when you are elected by the people, then you're accountable to the people mm-hmm. directly. They don't like what you do. You'll hear from them very loud and clearly. But when you have unelected members, you know, well-meaning and doing a good job perhaps, but still what happens is that how do you hold them accountable if you don't like the decision? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pointing. And that's really what's happened in Washington, D.C. You really can never get a straight answer exactly what's going on up there. Because no one's in charge and yet someone's in charge. And I believe that when you have elected officials in charge, then you know who you can hold accountable. If not during their term, definitely during election time, during re-election. You feel like there is chance for you to get this change with this year's legislative session? Do you have folks under the gold dome that perhaps can advocate for changing that? Well, it's a 40-day process. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. Let's talk about runoffs. Now, we know there's a significant decrease in voter participation. And we know, because you've just said it also, that it can be a strain on county elections departments. You and others say it's time for Georgia to end runoffs. Okay. Does that mean then you have to change the votes requirement or replacing it with some other voting alternative? To want something changed is great, but do you have a process in place that you want to either float out there or say, look, this is what we need to do? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, talk that we have and uh, bills will be filed by several members. And I think that'll get the process going. I think we need to have a very uh, open and transparent discussion on what are the different options? What would work best for Georgia? Um, how do you treat certain races, um, be that uh, municipal election versus you know state elections? But at the end of the day, what the counties have said clearly and what we've noticed mm-hmm. is that it's an inc- incredible burden on the voters of Georgia, and also on the voting election officials. No one wants to have elections during the middle of a holiday. And typically when you have these runoffs, it's right around the, the Thanksgiving period. And that's just really uh, very disruptive to people's lives. And so uh, is it time that we consider moving it? I said it was, and I think the General Assembly is going to start taking it up in the, in the coming days. I believe that Alaska and Maine are the only states with ranked choice voting for, I believe, statewide and, and federal elections. I think here in Georgia, that would take a constitutional amendment, right? What are your thoughts on that? Are you are you pro-ranked choice voting? Well, what we've said is we're not going to weigh into the, the General Assembly. When we start holding hearings and start holding committee meetings, uh, we will uh, provide options and ideas. Uh, also, I, I would fully expect that they'll reach out to our county election directors and get their input. You know, what are the, what are the obstacles? And if you actually come up with one system, does that eliminate all runoffs or are you just looking at a subset of that? So there's a lot there to consider. I just think that uh, we need to make sure it's thoughtful and that's going to work on a long-term basis. You're not going to tell me if you're in favor of ranked choice voting? If they if they asked you, they said, Secretary Raffensperger, what about you? What do you think of ranked choice voting? No, I think that really the General Assembly, that's their purview and let them do the hard work that they're going to have to do. And I know that they'll want to you know, solicit input from all different sides 
you know, both sides of the aisle, but also different ideas that you'll have just within both sides of the aisle. And so I don't want to get ahead of myself on that because then there's a process uh, over the 40-day session. So you're not going to tell me is what you're saying? I think that there's a process and we let that process work itself out. Uh, and uh, the late speaker used to always say that as it goes through the committee process, the bills will be perfected. And that's what I lean into. Counties have long rallied for support. You just mentioned a moment ago that you are in favor of them having more support, additional resources to help them run their respective elections. So you can admit that they are in need of more of those resources and maybe less politically driven oversight. What are counties telling you? You gave Fulton County a a, a, a for this past election cycle here. We know they've had issues. What are you willing to admit that these counties need that perhaps you all aren't able to give them right now? Uh, we didn't give anyone A's in any of the reports that just came out. Uh, so we didn't give Fulton County an A. We didn't put a grade on there. But what we said, they've had you know improvement. And that's really good. Um, because at the end of the day, I live in Fulton County, but everyone that lives in Fulton County, in fact, our entire state, we want every county to be successful. And that's really important. And so one of the processes is that making sure we have support. So we held a seminar about two and a half, three weeks ago now with all 159 county election directors and their team with over 300 people out in Athens. It was really uh, implementation of a new voter registration system. And then also we have the new poll pad check-in. It's going to really accelerate that process. We had about 40 counties that used it in the fall. And if you voted in Fulton County in person on election day, you saw how quick the check-in went. It was less than a minute. I think it was about 47 or 52 seconds. It was just a record beater. I have a question from a listener that actually sent this in over the weekend that wanted to know your thoughts on how the the voting machines themselves have been faring. I mean, when this rolled out some years ago, there was issues with some elections precincts not even having the proper, I don't know, AC wattage or whatever you want to call it, you know, to be able to handle these machines. Any other issues that you heard about? No, the the counties have, you know, really... uh, you know, are aware of the system, worked out all the bugs, things like that. We've done a 100% hand recount. The only thing that we did request in, in our budget is that right now the battery packs are about 80 pounds. And you have to understand the average poll worker is over 65. Mm-hmm. And so we can get uh, updated uh, power packs that will last a whole lot longer. And they're about 30, 35 pounds. And we really have recommended that to the General Assembly that we think that would be a wise investment and also considering the weight that you have right now, mm-hmm. uh, I think it'd really be uh, something that would be very well uh, you know, appreciated by all of the election workers. As we begin to wrap up here, just a few more questions I want to ask about, because I think sometimes folks forget that the Secretary of State's office has some other duties uh, aside you know, elections and, and things of that nature. Um, any other implementations for those non-election related duties that you would like to see the General Assembly consider for this year tomorrow on tuesday there'll be a conference on securities uh so uh i'll be participating in that because we have securities and charities and then we also have our licensing system uh, M, it's called emlo it's uh, a really uh antiqu- antiquated system it's uh it's not as robust as what we like to do so we'll be implementing a, a, an updated system for licensing we're trying to get the applications to line up so as much as we can is have common information across all the licenses so it looks uh, familiar so that we can administer more uh, licenses because we're having population growth and we're having licensing mm-hmm. growth. 
more people are, you know, seeking professional and occupational licenses, they increase their household income. And we think that's a good thing. And so we want to be more responsive to those needs by updating the software. Uh, that'll be something that we should have fully implemented uh, sometime by mid-year or early uh, by September. As you know, that special grand jury looking into the 2020 presidential election results here in Georgia and possible criminal misconduct by former President Donald Trump and others may or may not be public, but also could lead to indictments, depending on what Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis does. Secretary Raffensperger, do you believe laws were broken in any of that? Well, that's a legal question. and I'm an engineer, not a lawyer. And then I generally my position is I don't comment on ongoing uh, you know, legal investigations. So uh, the DA will do her job and the legal system will do theirs and we'll find out in due time. Well, throughout all that drama, lawsuits, any regrets, any lessons that you're willing to admit perhaps you could have done differently or, or your office throughout from 2020 to, to now? Uh, there's not much you can do when people go out and just, you know, decide that they're going to say whatever they want to say and uh, we have obviously had so much misinformation, disinformation that we were combating. And we just never had the resources. Uh, we had at the peak probably 40,000 Twitter followers and other people had millions and millions. And so these things got out there and they get out there on s- some national media outlets. And so we were always pushing back on that. And that's what we did. And that's really what I've done for the last year and a half, almost two years now, is just talking to you know business groups, talking to Rotarians, Kiwanis, uh, and then political party groups, let them know this is what happened in the election. And gently, but also respectfully, explain to them here what the facts are. But you can't do anything when people want to, you know, I guess call it disinformation, if you will, you know, put out uh, stuff that's just not based on facts. It makes it tough on us, but we responded. And uh, I think it was someone once said, I think it was Mark Twain said that the lie will go halfway around the world before the you know pants has had a chance to put in, put themselves on. So, well, they were that's lies. Really where we are right now. Yeah, but but they were lies, and you and others, your family, you, you took personal attacks, uh, even yeah. some from your fellow Republicans here in Georgia, some folks who ran for statewide offices, some folks who won. You received death threats, correct? You and your family. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand that I took an oath to the Constitution, and I also made an oath to be faithful to the laws of the people of Georgia and also the federal laws. And so that's what I did. We followed the law, followed the Constitution. At the end of the day, um, we had the facts on our side. Sure. And I think some people knew what the facts were. They didn't have the moral courage to stand up and be counted. Do those folks owe and you an apology? Job, well, my job is to stand up being counted. And... Over time, we've been proven right. What's next for you? Is that too early to ask well, about what's next? Uh, running for governor? Any other? Oh, well, right now, we're just working on getting through this session. So that'll keep us plenty busy the next 40 days. And as it relates to 2024, what do you want Georgians to know about your commitment, your office, you personally, to ensuring a fair and equitable voting experience, whether it's with registration making sure folks aren't unfairly or illegally purged from voting rolls. What do you want folks to know? I think we've shown that we're going to make sure that we have fair and honest elections for everyone. We're going to make sure that we have uh, clean 
and accurate voter rolls. And if we update the voter rolls, it's going to be done objectively, not subjectively. And we're going to have a verifiable paper ballot. We would like to see the General Assembly really authorize and require additional audits because we think that shores up voter confidence. We're going to continue to make sure those we keep those lines short. That's really, you know, not that's one of the most important things that voters really appreciate. Mm -hmm. So fair, honest elections, short lines, and everyone knows that if they want to vote, they'll have plenty of opportunities to vote. Uh, so we feel good. Record registrations, record turnout. And we're going to continue to provide that for all of Georgia. I'll give you one more chance to answer the ranked choice voting. Well, we're going to let the General Assembly you know, decide what they want to do you know, this session. And that'll be uh, you know, their, uh, I guess, policy position. We just said that runoff should be eliminated. It creates a burden, not just on the election directors, but also families. They want to enjoy their you know, Thanksgiving weekends. Uh, Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, a local advocate shares her experience in navigating America's complicated immigration system. And we'll talk about changing public perception of immigrants. But first, we want to bring you this. This past weekend, yeah, there were numerous protests and gatherings across the nation. Of course, the focus, the video footage released showing the brutal beating of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols in Memphis. It happened January 7th. He would die three days later. Five black Memphis police officers were fired and have been charged with second-degree murder, as well as other charges. And since then, an additional officer has been placed on administrative leave. Many of the protests, including here in Atlanta, call for demands to reform interactions and policies between law enforcement and the public, which many protesters say is long overdue, and especially within the black community and authorities. It's still slavery, it's still going on, but it's just called slavery by another name. We should have already overcome. Now, this past Sunday, there was a show of solidarity among mostly black men and boys inside the Destiny, Destiny World Church located in Austell, Georgia. Pastor Wilbur Purvis III asked the men to stand and form a circle inside the sanctuary, followed by this. Lock arms, lock arms. Isn't this awesome? What if America did this? I love it. Pastor Purvis led the circle of nearly 200 in a seven-point creed to protect each other, and as he said, to strengthen the bond of brotherhood. I want you brothers to look at your brother on your left and right. I'm going to make several declarations. I want you to say it to your brother on your left and your right. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am my brother's keeper. Find a, look, at, look the other way and say this to him. Our bond is strong. And will never break. Look at another. Say, I'm praying for you. I'm rooting for you. I believe in you. Come on, look at them. Say this seriously. If you get tired. And again, that is Pastor Wilbur Purvis III from Destiny World Church located in Austell, Georgia. And there's more of that you can find on YouTube. Closer Look continues. We're back in a moment.
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. 2.8 million. That is the number that, according to U.S. officials, was record-setting in terms of migrants that were reportedly stopped over the past year at America's southern border. And, of course, lawmakers are once again debating what should be done, but they haven't come up with anything. In fact, they haven't come up with anything for more than 20 years, as the U.S. immigration system has yet to be reformed in any way. Reports indicate the Biden administration, conservative lawmakers, and justices are moving towards tighter restrictions at the U.S. border. But my next guest says, through her personal experience, the U.S. can be more welcoming and secure at the border. Sarah Quezada is with the Atlanta-based organization Women of Welcome, and is also the author of Love Undocumented, Risking Trust in a Fearful World. And she joins me now. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Let's begin here. Take me back, take me and the listeners back to the first time you visited, I believe it was the U.S.-Mexico border, right? Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? The first time I went to the border was in San Diego, Tijuana. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how long ago that was, but it was long enough that I don't remember. It's been at least 10 years, at least 20 years. What did you, what can you re- recall from that first visit? What did you see? There is an area at the Pacific Coast that is was formerly labeled Friendship Park by one of the first ladies, mm-hmm. and it was a, supposed to be a place where the border was porous. You could see through. You could talk to people mm-hmm. across the wall. I was there shortly after my husband had gone through the immigration process, and we were hanging out at that part of the beach looking at the wall, and we were watching families visit each other through the U.S.-Mexico border. And it it was a very stark image of what our life had been, could have been, could have continued to be as we watched a mother and her child sitting in a camp chair on one side of the border passing coffee through the border to a man on the other side that was her husband. And then the last time that you were on the border... The last time I was there was in El Paso. It was last year. And lots has changed in the last 10 to 20 years of what it looks like because of some of the restrictions that were put in place during COVID and the ways that people are simply waiting for their opportunity to apply for asylum. And we walked through encampments on the Mexican side of the border and talked with people who were, who were just simply waiting, waiting for their turn. Give our listeners an account of one of those families or, or an individual that stays with you or has been with you since that time. We came across a, a tent where there were several women that were all together, and they simply shared that they had been working in different agricultural elements in their home country in Guatemala, Honduras, and it's a very sensitive thing. People's journey from Central America, in particular, up through the through mm-hmm. Mexico to the border, and so I always want to be sensitive not to intrude into sure. some of that pain, but allow people to share what they're willing to share. And I think what sticks with me is both the vulnerability of women saying, "I just want something better for my kids, and I'm not sure what's going to happen." Um, it was pretty, 
pretty short before tears are flowing. I think there's just this connection among mothers of we know what that's like to want good things for our kids, to want safety for our kids, to want flourishing for our kids, and to see that in women who are kind of being thwarted at every turn and that vulnerability in that moment. We think about the process, if you will, for those wanting to enter the United States from the southern border as opposed to the process from those entering from Europe or, or other nations. Mm-hmm. And you and you and I think I'm not speaking for you, I'll let you say it, but clearly there is a different type There's of processor process here. So there are some countries that do not require any pre planning to be able to come to the US. They can come with a passport. There are many countries where You know, a common thing that we hear is, well, people just need to wait in line. And there are lots of people who do not have a line to wait in, that they are trying to go through that process and it's simply not available. Can you share what that process was like for your husband? So my husband uh, told me around our third date that he had, had an immigration situation. And, you know, and I thought to myself, well, I hope he gets that fixed Mm -hmm. if this gets serious. And it was, I had no idea what we would be walking through. And we met with a lawyer when we got engaged and he said, well, it could, could go this way. You could apply and it could be fine. Or you could have to move to Guatemala, live there 10 years, and then you can apply. Was he, was he seeking asylum or just wanted to go through the regular, at that time, whatever the regular immigration process was? Great question. No, he was not seeking asylum. He had come to the U.S. legally with a visa and had overstayed his visa, which since about 2008 is the majority of undocumented people in the U.S. have actually overstayed visas. What's What was the most taxing or frustrating part of his journey in trying to, to get the proper, as we call it, documentation and and all that. And was he ever threatened, or, or I won't use the word threat, was he ever labeled as, you know, un- unlawfully, you know, residency here in the United States? Sure. Uh, getting pulled over was very intimidating for him. Um, I think the most frustrating part for him was that his only pathway was to marry me, and he's very independent. So his response to that was to break up with me and suggest that we <laughs> not see each other again. So we had to kind of work through that. Of you're like, wait, well, hold on, I'm talking about love, buddy. <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand I don't what's happening. It like <laughs> but it was, it, it was very, he didn't want to be in that vulnerable position in sure. our relationship. And I can understand that. But I imagine that was difficult to hear, obviously. Absolutely. And I think it was honestly shocking for me to hear because I just didn't understand our U.S. immigration system at all. Mm-hmm. So I didn't recognize that that could be a barrier. What do you think is the perception that some folks have about certain immigrants or immigrants from certain nations as a, and other ones, other nations? And, you know, the, the, the interesting perception that people have. Things that are unfamiliar to us are often scary. And that has been exploited for various reasons that people want to make certain types of immigration situations seem intimidating or seem threatening. But there's one thing that that I have experienced is when people get close to someone who's in that situation, they find that it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more joyful than than it needs to be scary. What are you all with Women of Welcome? You know, what is your mission here? So Women of Welcome is an online community 
that is for Christian women who want to learn more about what God says about immigrants and refugees. Mm-hmm. It was started out of a desire um, to connect with a group of women who weren't necessarily being talked to about this issue. Research shows that churches don't necessarily preach many sermons on immigration. Mm-hmm. There weren't necessarily opportunities where those questions were being asked. And when there's a, a gap in the story, then other places fill that in. And so we wanted to talk directly to Christian women. As a faith-based organization, and you are using that as the avenue, but do the, the people that you're talking to, do they have to be Christian as well? Or do they have to have the same type of faith belief system? I just want to make sure our listeners understand where you, you know. Sure. No, it's, I mean, anyone who is interested in. I mean, just in, like Catholic charities. Say, I mean, mm-hmm. it, yeah. But um, but a lot of the messaging is specifically around from a faith perspective and what does the Bible say? What do you tell them? What does the Bible say? The Bible has to say a lot about immigration. So it's kind of surprising and unfortunate that it's not talked about more in churches. But there is a lot of scriptures about welcoming the stranger, about treating the foreigner, how you would like to be treated. And there's also just a, I think for many people of faith, a basic human dignity that all God, all people are created in God's image. And so how do we treat them with that dignity and respect? And who else are you telling this message to or trying to get this message to? Because the people that make the policies, one would argue they perhaps could benefit perhaps from hearing this message. Absolutely. I think that, you know, um, in some Christian communities, particularly for women, there can be a narrative of, oh, we, I'm not political. I don't get involved in political things. And I think one of the things we've talked about in Women of Welcome is we are nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but politics impact people and we care about people. So how do we engage in the political sphere in a way that aligns with our faith and values? And we've had women who have walked through our community for months and years, and then they'll say, I just called my congressperson for the very first time to tell them that this is important to me. And we celebrate that because we do, while that's not necessarily our end goal is to have everyone call Congress, it's one of the ways that we can show welcome and hopefully impact policy that impacts real people. Can you share where your husband is right now in the process? My husband became a U.S. citizen almost 10 years ago now. So when I wrote Love Undocumented, we had already gone through that whole process. We wanted that to be completed before we started telling that story and being a part of it. What was that like that day that he took the oath and all of that? It was so emotional. And I had a two-week-old baby in my arms, and no one tells you what to do if you're walking around with an infant. So I accidentally sat with all of the new Americans (laughs) because I didn't realize where I was. And being in that environment and they're going through and calling everyone's home country and people are just cheering and then just the emotion in the room and I'm just bawling partly because I have a two-week-old baby but also because I knew the journey that so many people in that room had been through I knew our journey that we had walked through and it was just like this huge release of breath to be able to celebrate that and obviously everyone doesn't have that it doesn't end that way for millions of people sure we know that but with your husband's with this being a success, you know, a, a happy ending, there's so many that are still trying to navigate that. What did work for you? I mean, was it the marriage, the, you know, because someone listening will say, mm-hmm. well, everyone doesn't have the option of, you know, being able to get married, but you, you were in love. I don't want y'all hating on love out there. <laughs> don't be Valentine's Day. Yeah, don't be hating on love, but, you know. It was a combination of 
He had entered the country legally, which gave him a different pathway to start on. Mm -hmm. Um, Being married to a U.S. citizen was definitely a part of that. He had not um, committed any crimes or anything that would have raised any red flags when we went through that process. But so, but I do remember sitting in the lawyer's office feeling very stressed about we paperwork. We didn't have all the right things. And he said, look, you guys have a pathway. Mm-hmm. He said, do you see that couple sitting out in the lobby? They come see me all the time. They have no pathway. So I know this is stressful, but you have a pathway. And that stuck with me. What do you think you all can do besides, you know, maybe not lobbying in terms of, you said you guys are, you know, nonpartisan, but what role can you all play in trying to ensure, I mean, look, Congress hasn't figured it out, so it's an unfair question to say, have you all figured it out? (laughs) I mean, let's just be really clear about that. But what role can you all play in this process? Is it just telling more people's stories, telling your story? Well, one of the things that I think is important with a community like Women of Welcome, where a lot of the women lean politically conservative, is to encourage them to reach out to their conservative leaders and say, this is not a partisan issue for me. This is a faith issue. This is a human dignity issue. This is a people issue. So that is one area that we do continue to call on women in our community to speak up. We also create uh, lots of free resources, including Bible studies, and women have started leading those in their churches. They've gone to their pastors and said, hey, could our church get involved in this immigrant or refugee ministry? And they're being that voice in a space where maybe nobody else is speaking up. Will you return to, or you all return to the border anytime soon here? And how often are you going? So we have some partners on the border that we will organize trips periodically. We have for 2023, we have a trip planned in April and another one in the fall. For listeners who say there has to be a compassionate approach and others who say, well, there's a process that everybody must follow, get in line is what you just said there. What do you think is missing in between the compassionate and and the, oh, just get in line? Is it perception then? I would say one of the things that's probably missing is the the understanding of what is that line, what is that process. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the reasons that I wanted to write Love Undocumented was I thought, I had no idea. If more people knew this, I'm sure the conversation... You had no idea of the immigration process until you fell in love? Absolutely. (laughs) That was not something I was thinking about. (laughs) In fact, I'd been interviewed, the job I had, it had been an interview question. They said, what what are your opinions on immigration? And I said, well... Your job, they asked you that? I know, but I was working in that space, and I said, well... Okay. I don't want to get you in trouble. I'm just saying, what... (laughs) They probably asked it a little more HR-ly than that. But I. But How do you my, feel about world issues? Yes, okay. exactly. Right. And I said, well, I believe that people should follow the rules, and I believe that we should welcome people. And that was kind of my entire summary of, of what I knew about immigration at that time. And while I still think both of those things are true, I realize there's a whole lot more behind both of those elements now. Will this continue to be a, a lifelong, a lifelong, but you are committed to working in this space? It seems that way. I've been involved for 15 years at this point of just continuing to write and speak and encourage other people to do the same about this topic because I do think it's so important. And I think it's part of our American story. It's part of my personal story. How do you reconcile, though, because when we talk about faith-based 
organizations and some who are political were extremely political and those who are a little bit more considered I guess progressive or what have you and because each can have a very uh, you know conservative lens through through certain issues as it relates to whatever for example women's reproductive rights things of that nature immigration how do you have those conversations with those faith with those folks from the that side they're very heavily conservative evangelical lens here sure we want to start with a baseline of compassion so if someone is stepping into this issue without any compassion or concern for humans walking through this process then they may not be ready for the conversation but what we found particularly through women of welcome is that there are many many evangelical women who have compassion and need to attach confidence to that compassion. They, mm-hmm. need, they want to understand how to talk about it. They want to understand what the Bible has to say about it. They want to understand how they can get involved in their communities. And that's really where we try to come in and connect. And finally, how do you gauge, you know, if there's progress or achievements being made with you all being able, as you see it, to empower women to use their faith, their houses of worship, their faith-based, you know, ideology, to address this issue is it when one woman says hey i finally called my you know representative or you know congressperson is that that's a good question and it is a it's a tough one to answer so yes i do i celebrate when people say i called my congressperson for the very first time we actually gathered in november we took a a coalition of women of welcome to dc and we Mm -hmm. met with our representatives in person and I just celebrate those moments because you see people taking steps along that journey. We had women who, when Afghan refugees were living on military bases, a woman in our community said, there's an issue with women getting tea in their residence. And so she raised, she got 500 thermoses to be able to take and deliver. And so we celebrate those moments when we see people stepping out, welcoming people. Sometimes it can fracture their relationships with people in their families or in Mm -hmm. their church communities and so we want to walk alongside them as they navigate that as well but we celebrate each of those steps are you encouraged with the biden administration because look that southern border those restrictions are getting tighter they are are you it there has been the restrictions at the border that have been in place since covid just has been really hard to continue to watch people suffer in that way Sarah Quezada is with the Atlanta-based organization Women of Welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. Thank you. How old is your little one? Not little anymore. They are 9 and 12 now. Oh, goodness. You're about to get some teenagers. (laughs) It's a (laughs) lot of fun. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as y'all love to do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like because it is free. It should be. They try to charge you, then don't do it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Today, when a doctor becomes a patient. After working as a neurosurgeon for over 40 years, Henry Marsh was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. The cancer led him to reflect on doctor-patient relationships, his own mortality, why he'd consider the possibility of hastening the end through medically-assisted death, and how he wants to spend the time he has left. We'll talk about his new memoir called, And Finally. He'll also tell us about his work in England, pioneering a certain form of brain surgery without anesthesia, and about the frequent visits he's made to Ukraine over the past three decades, performing brain surgery and training neurosurgeons. He's been there twice since the war started. His work in Ukraine was the subject of an Emmy award-winning documentary called The English Surgeon. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A sixth Memphis police officer has been suspended pending an investigation into his role in Tyree Nichols' arrest during a traffic stop earlier this month that led to Nichols' fatal beating. Mark Peraskaya, who directs the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis, has details. The sixth officer is uh, Preston Hampill. He was affiliated with the Scorpion unit. We know very little about him personally. He seems to be a young officer, but he also appears to be the officer who shows up in the video, what they've labeled as video one in the encounter with Tyree Nichols and is the officer, white officer who deploys his taser in the, in the first confrontation. Five officers were fired and are charged with Nichols killing. All were part of the special police unit called Scorpion, which is now shut down. House Republican lawmakers will launch a series of hearings this week investigating Democrats. NPR's Cloyda Grisales reports that to start, two House committees will examine Biden administration policies. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says his panel will start with a hearing focused on pandemic relief spending. There have been reports of lots of waste, fraud and abuse with respect to the stimulus funds, PPP loan funds, unemployment funds and all of that. So we're just going to roll our sleeves up and get started there. Comer's hearing on pandemic spending is just one of the GOP's planned investigations that are starting. There are others focused on the Biden family. The Judiciary Committee, led by Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, will hold a hearing on what they've dubbed as, quote, Biden's border crisis. And both hearings are slated for Wednesday morning. Claudia Gisales, NPR News, Washington. Ukraine's anxious to get modern battle tanks from its Western allies into the battlefield ASAP, but some tank crews who are vital to the fight against Russia won't be on the ground. They're in the U.K. for training. NPR's Frank Langford is in Kiev. The British say they plan to send the Challenger tanks by the end of March. It's a reminder of just how much training and logistics are required for Ukrainians to operate the hodgepodge of sophisticated weapons they're receiving from NATO allies. Ukrainians are grateful to have the tanks, but lawmakers here in Kyiv say training crews and reserve crews for various tanks, including the German Leopard and the American Abrams, delays getting them into the fight. Ukrainian President Zelensky says the tanks are desperately needed in parts of the Donbass, where the Russians have reportedly built up strength and are constantly attacking. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kyiv. At the last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 110 points at 33,870. The Nasdaq has fallen 170 points. It's NPR. 
In Afghanistan, a government official says that roughly 170 people have died this January in cold-related incidents. The official says deepening poverty among Afghans is making the crisis worse. NPR's D. Hadid has the latest from Islamabad. The spokesman for the Ministry of Natural Disaster Management, Shafia Larahimi, told NPR that dozens of people had died from extreme cold, floods and even fire during the month of January, the coldest month of the year. He estimated that more than 80,000 animals had also died. Those deaths were in some way related to Afghanistan's brutal winter, where people burn wood, coal and even trash and plastic bags to keep themselves warm. Rahimi said they were assisting 35,000 families, but he said more help was needed. It's unlikely to come quickly. The Taliban recently announced new bans on women working in aid organisations, which prompted several large charities to halt or scale back their work in Afghanistan. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Students and faculty at Richneck Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia, are back in class three weeks after a first-grade teacher was shot by one of her students. More security was on site when the school reopened today. A new administrator has also been appointed. Meanwhile, the wounded teacher, Abby Werner, is recovering at home. She says that school officials failed to act on warnings that a six-year-old boy in her class had a gun. Last week, her attorney announced plans to sue the school district. I'm Lakshmi Singh in PR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. WABE. WABE. <laughs> 